Hi. Hi. How are you guys doing? Um, my name is Kevin. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm one of the pastors at Spark, and I just want to welcome you and thank you. I'm a little emotional, actually, that you would come out for a conversation such as this, in the tone and in the posture such as this, in the midst of um, the culture that we are in, in the midst of the church that we all inhabit and love, and to see your faces, to hear you sing together as one church, um, I was just being moved by that and just wanted to thank you for that. Um, I want to say really quickly a huge thank you to Todd, who's running sound, and to Sean and Christina, who's part of our, uh, the Foothill staff. Would you please give them a big thank you for all of their hard work? Uh, I've rented out multiple locations. I'm sure many of you have been a part of that before, and the staff here at Foothill has been phenomenally hospitable uh, and gracious and kind and worked with us. I also want to say a tremendous thanks to um, all of our sponsors. The partnership in this event tonight is also another reason to celebrate, um, to consider that all of you from Highway and from River and Sequoia and Spark and Brave Maker, um, and then many other churches that I know that you're a part of who weren't official sponsors, to have us all in the room for this conversation is also very touching to me, and I just want to thank you so much for that. I want to share with you very briefly Here's generally what is going to happen tonight. we got an hour, hour and 15, where we're going to have a conversation together. We're going to take a 10-minute intermission because your mind can only absorb what your bottom can tolerate. So we want to make sure that we give you a sense of a break. And there's actually a psychological and spiritual reason for that. We're going to have a fairly, um, uh, we're going to have a a conversation. And to move into Q&R, which is question and response, that's how we do it. Um, requires you to just settle for just a moment, to think and to process and to even converse with your friends. So our intermission isn't just a programmatic piece. It's also a moment for us to catch our breaths. Um, There will be a microphone down here. We'll also ask that you please submit questions through Slido. Um, If it's in your handout, um, all that information is there. And use the uh, code SSSOC19. And please make sure that you start doing that at any particular time and start upvoting. We'll use Slido as part of the question and our time. At the very end of the event, please make sure that you give us your feedback. I'm actually going to help us stop and do that. Your feedback is critical. We, um, our leadership at our church thinks that events are not just important in and of themselves, but the work that you do after it is also as critical, if not more critical. And so your feedback to us is going to be really, really important for us in that work. After, as well, Preston and Justin will have their books available right outside, and I'll give you some directions for that. So I hope that you stop by the booth, greet them, say hello, get your book signed, pick up a book if you haven't, uh, had, uh, haven't read their books yet, any of that stuff, and make sure you support them and their ministries. There's a couple uh, things I want to say as a brief introduction, and then we're going to introduce Preston and Justin. First, if you haven't read the introduction in the One Church Statement in the handout, I'm really going to ask that you kindly read it. I don't want to spend a lot of time here talking about that, but I would ask you to consider, time is precious, as you know, so please read that and consider carefully the tone and the foundation of what it is that we're trying to do tonight. We have done everything that we can to communicate to all of us, this is not a debate. Debates are not going to be helpful, but conversations, empathy, understanding, questions, entering into understanding one another is. And so... Tonight is, um, I'm going to ask all of us to have a posture of humility where we have come to prepare to learn. For for us, humility means listening to one another, desiring to understand a little bit better, and using that to ask better and deeper questions 
of the most important topics and issues and challenges that we all face. And, and so that's our posture for tonight. And I know Preston and Justin have worked really hard for that. That's one of the reasons why I asked them, because they have modeled that so much. And above all, above all, it is to honor the person with whom we may even have some serious disagreements. On Twitter, and I asked his permission, Matt, Matt Nightingale, who's here, Preston posted this and talked a little bit about his, you know, welcome to my world about your arranging Airbnb. And then I love Matt's um, tweet here. He says, I may disagree with you in a lot of things. And I know that there's disagreements, fierce, real, um, not flaky, but significant disagreements. But I see your heart to love and serve people. And I really appreciated that because it exemplifies the heart of what we're trying to do. We're not asking you to set aside your disagreements. We're asking all of us to add to the very important conversations, the humanity of the person with whom we're having a conversation to listen carefully. Second thing that I wanted to share with you is that a common way that I think all of us approach ethical and theological issues is usually, and I'm sure many of you are very familiar with this, is usually with a very direct line of inquiry. So tell me what you believe about X. And depending upon the person that's asking, uh, it could be a very simple, straightforward answer, or it could actually be an interrogation. And I face that throughout my life and throughout my ministry career. And depending upon what answer that I give, I'm either lauded and praised or I'm condemned. And so I have developed, as I know many of you, um, a desire for a different way of having that conversation. So rather than just giving answers, honestly, I want to actually sit down and have coffee. I want to have a conversation. I want to actually communicate. I want to listen carefully. And I want to be heard as well. So that the various aspects and nuances of the things that we hold dear can actually be addressed. Rather than just lobbying rhetorical bombs at one another. As the axiom goes, seek first to understand. Seek first to understand. So I just wanted to set some groundwork that if you're here tonight hoping that your side is going to win, hoping that your team is going to prevail, hoping that you're going to walk out fully justified in your beliefs, I'm going to ask that we all set that aside and just think deeply and carefully. I may have more to learn. I may have more to consider. And most of all, I will leave this place a better human being for having learned and listened and empathized and grown in my knowledge. Most importantly, and i sorry about this, I really hope that tonight is just the beginning. We hope that it sparks conversation. <laughs> there is a reason why we call it. That tonight is really just the beginning. That what happens tonight continues on in your small groups around coffee, at your dinner tables, in your families. And that what has happened here has really caused us all to be better and more effective, more fruitful in having Jesus-honoring conversations um, and transformations in our life. Okay, with that being said, I just want to say that Justin and Preston are two people that I have observed incarnate this posture through their work. And having spent some time with them, I am even more excited for us to have this conversation for both of them, respectively, in their ministries, are changing the way we're all having this conversation, and I'm tremendously grateful. Absolutely, you are going to disagree at times. Absolutely, you're going to agree at times. And absolutely, you're going to want a point to be made. So we don't ignore that. But we also want to make sure that we do everything we can to have a conversation with love, respect, and humility, and grace. And I am absolutely confident and so thankful to them for modeling that 
And now I put a whole bunch of pressure on them. So, friends, please, everyone, give a warm welcome to Justin Lee and Preston Sprinkle. All right, I hope I didn't. Uh, anyway, there you go. <laughs> I'm um, nervous. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I hate I, introductions like that are, are challenging. Um, Preston is going to share um, a few moments, and then Justin's going to share a few moments, and then we're going to have some questions and have a conversation. All right. Okay. Preston, go ahead. Yeah. I'm so nervous. This is like... So <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever you're about to say, I'm going to disagree with you. So <laughs> well, that'll be interesting, given how I'm going to begin. Um, I guess all the cliched, thank you for being here and all that, thank you for hosting this, but I, this conversation is, is dear to both of our hearts, um, and I just, it means a lot to see so many Christians show up to have a, a nuanced conversation with a desire uh, that we would go about this in a humble manner, like that's super encouraging. I was asking Kevin, Kevin, do you think there's going to be any like really polarizing voices here that are going to not want the humility and the nuance and the conversation? And you were like, I don't think so. I think people are hungering for a thoughtful, humanizing conversation, even in the midst of disagreement. So um, one of the first books I read in this conversation several years ago was this book, Torn. Um, and I... This book reshaped how I approached this topic. In fact, um, I was skimming it, and uh, I want you to, <laughs> at the back I said, when I was taking notes, like, because I was working on a book at the very beginning stages, and I have, so my book, I say, don't read the bottom, because that's where I disagree with you, but, the, <laughs> <laughs> but I say, <laughs> the top part says, the, t- my, the tone of my book should look like this book. Um, I remember reading this and just being just blown away at just the, the real life story of somebody raised in a church and going through his own wrestling with faith, faith and sexuality. And I just was, it just, it really, it tore me up in, in the best way possible. And this, this, any, if there's anything about my approach to this, which is far from it, from perfect too, like I mess up every single day <laughs> And, and how I go about this, but um, if there is anything in my posture that it has is trying to humanize this conversation, it, it's due to first reading Justin's book. In fact, I, I sh- shortly after taught a class on homosexuality in the Bible, and I assigned at, at a conservative Bible college, and this is the first book I assigned, and I got some emails from that. So, I, <laughs> so thanks for that. Um, there, uh, shortly after reading Justin's book, I, I came across a quote by a guy who's now a friend of mine, Drew Harper. He's a gay, gay, gay man. Used to be, used to be, ra- was raised in a church, not uh, a Christian any longer. And he said this, and I quote: "To be gay in the American evangelical church is to be dead. You're an outcast, a refugee, a diseased person." And that. That sums up so many stories that I've heard from LGBTQ plus people raised in the church. And that, 
wherever you are at in this conversation, that, that's just, that's, that's not Christian. I mean, we, we, we sing the platitudes like the church is a hospital for, for sinners, right? Not a museum for the saints. And I, I, I like, I, I don't like most cliches, but I like that one. It's a good one. But when did the church become a graveyard for gay people? And we, we, we sing these empty phrases like love the sinner or hate the sin. And I used to love that phrase and now I hate that phrase. <laughs> Why don't we love the sinner, hate our own sin and invite all people to come walk with Jesus together as one broken sinner to another broken sinner, inviting another beggar in need of bread to follow this crucified Messiah together. And so I just, I've been torn, I've been truly torn up at these stories I've heard and not just, not just heard, but, but now many friends of mine and, and, and hearing their stories and how that has left a lasting, almost irreversible scar and on the relationship with God. One of my really good friends and mentors in this conversation, a girl named Leslie, who has experienced intense gender dysphoria her whole life. And she says, I have the, the, the abomination gospel so branded into my soul that every single day I wake up and believe that God, the God that she is passionately serving, she just feels this sense of shame because of the, the abomination gospel that has been branded into her. You, just, you, can't, you can't treat this topic the same when you enc- not just encounter their stories, but when, when those stories become wrapped up into your own story. Um, so that all, all of just... That aspect of my heart in this conversation was first ignited by Justin Lee's book. So I, you know, we both, we both have books for sale out there, I guess, right? We're selling books. So, but if you can only buy one book, I want you to buy my book. Okay. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I would highly recommend buying one of each. Um, Justin and I, we, we, we have a lot in common. And, and please correct me maybe now or later if, if I say anything here that you say, no, actually we don't have that in common. But let, let me just, <laughs> I, I think it's important to establish some common beliefs. Neither of us believe that being gay is a sin that somebody needs to repent from. And, and I want to kind of qualify that and give nuance because some of you are like, whoa, what, huh? I, but I'm, not, I'm just going to let it sit. Being gay is not something you need to repent from. Both of us are passionate about and, and run organizations towards helping churches become a place of flourishing for LGBTQ people. Both of us believe that many Christian churches have a lot of repenting to do for how we have shamed and shunned and dehumanized and demeaned or, or simply spoken a deafening silence over the existence of LGBTQ people. Neither of us support reparative therapy or, or so-called ex-gay ministries. No offense if, if that's something you're into. It's just not, we're not into that. Uh, both of us believe that premarital sex and polyamory are sin, which is a radical thing to say in 2019. Uh, both of us, I think, we receive some flack, if not a lot of flack, from both sides on the, the for lack of better terms, the far right and far left. Um, numerically, I mean, if you were going to add up all our, all our similarities and differences, there'd probably be a lot more similarities. But I, I don't want to downplay the significance of where we do disagree. And, and, and you stated that from the stage. We talked about this before. Like, like we are 
where we disagree, we, we are passionate about. Um, and, and we don't want to downplay that. If I can sum up our difference in as, as simple or concise terms as I can, it would be this. I think we answer this following question differently. The question is this, as concise as I can put it. Is sex difference part of what marriage is? Is sex difference part of what marriage is? Um, There's, I guess, two general definitions of marriage. One would say that marriage is a consensual, faithful union between two adults, two consenting adults. And another definition would be that marriage is the one flesh union between two sexually different persons. I would say our, our ethical or theological disagreement largely flows from that. Like that, that is really the, the, the foundation from which our disagreements are going to flow from. I mean, yeah, we're going to probably interpret Leviticus differently and Romans, whatever, and maybe some hermeneutical things that we can talk about. But really, our overarching difference has to do with how we answer the question, is sex difference part of what marriage is? I, I'm going to answer yes. And if you, if, if anybody, if you affirm same-sex marriage as, as something that God blesses or endorses, then you would say no. Like, maybe it's fine if people who are sexually different get married, but that's not intrinsic to the very meaning of what marriage is. Where I, where I would say it is intrinsic to what marriage is. When we say the word marriage, when I say that, I mean the union between two sexually different persons. Um, I, I, and honestly, I, I, in the... Um, I believe it's one of the greatest <laughs> blunders in the theological debates and conversations around this topic. One of the greatest blunders is a failure to identify and simply lay out each respective understanding of what marriage is. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that people often just race to Leviticus or Romans or all these things and start arguing for same-sex marriage or against or for or whatever without even saying, here's what I mean. When I say the word marriage, here is what I mean by that. Here's where I get that definition from. And here is how, here's how I understand scripture informing that definition of marriage. So to me, that, that is a huge, huge um, piece of my, my theological understanding of this conversation is that sex difference is part of what marriage is. Or to, maybe I just, if you want me to, a more developed statement, I believe in what I call the historically Christian view of marriage. And we, we're going to probably talk about terms, so maybe um, you might not find that term helpful, but the historically Christian view of marriage, which says that marriage is precisely the coming together of two sexually different persons in a one flesh covenant union intended for life and that all sexual relationships outside that covenant bond are sin. Um, how much more time? Two minutes? One minute? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> just, okay, quick, let me just summarize in th- a three-hour argument into 20 seconds. <laughs> let me just give you three reasons why I believe in that. Number one, when... <laughs> The Bible consistently affirms that sex difference is part of what marriage is, not just as a cultural artifact, but as a creational prescription. It's not just that, oh, most marriages in the ancient world were kind of between man and woman, and the Bible kind of adopts that cultural norm. I'm saying that it's built into the very fabric of God's design for what marriage is, is, is what I would believe. And I would have reasons for that from scripture and Christian tradition. Number two, whenever scripture mentions same-sex sexual relationships, they are always prohibited. Justin agrees with that. 
Anybody that believe, right, reads the Bible believes in that. The debate is not about what the Bible says. It's about what it means and how it applies for today. But I do think it is important or yeah, significant that whenever same-sex sexual relationships are mentioned in the Bible, they are always prohibited. Um, and I do think those prohibitions include all kinds of same-sex relationships, not just exploitative or um, other aberrant forms of same-sex relationships. And number three, the global multi-ethnic, multi-denominational church for 2,000 years, the global church, um, has also um, understood the ethical questions along similar lines. Now, I don't use the tradition. I'm a Protestant, okay? I'm a Bible guy, so I don't, I don't use the tradition argument as a standalone argument, but just as a way to cross-check my interpretation. So I don't think People say, now, this is your view, Preston, and you believe, and your view is this. I was like, well, I'm not. I affirm the historical view that's been affirmed for 2,000 years cross-denominationally. This isn't just my personal, private kind of interpretation of Scripture. So, so it's important. To, it's, so here, the, the, and I'll stop. The, the, it's so important to understand this is not a debate about inclusive being inclusive versus exclusive. Like, Justin's the inclusive one. I'm the exclusive one. We both any Christian believes, any Christian is, by definition, inclusive. The debate comes, uh, the debate surrounds the sexual ethic that we're including people into. You see, that's a huge difference. Everybody believes in including, or should believe, if you're a Christian, including all people, but you're including people into a, commu- a forgiven community seeking holiness and repentance, and part of what constitutes holiness is a sexual ethic, and that's the disagreement. But we don't disagree on whether all means all, love means love, and we should include uh, all people into that community seeking holiness and repentance. Um, I'm going to stop. I've got a lot more to say, but I've, I've already taken too much time. So that's my intro. Yeah. Peace. <laughs> what is that? Is that the wrong way? I don't know. <laughs> Justin. So I said I was going to disagree with what you said. So, um, we'll start with this. I don't know what kind of hack book this is. <laughs> this Justin Lee character. Uh, well, no, I disagree with you on one important thing, which is if you're going to buy one book, <laughs> <laughs> some things are disputable matters. Some things are not. Um, no, so yeah, I, I, there are, obviously, as you might imagine, there are things that Preston said that I uh, 100% agree with. There are things that he said that, that I significantly disagree with, uh, some of which I think are pretty big issues, and it's important that we have this conversation. But I don't want to start by uh, jumping right into all the ways that we disagree. We'll get there. Uh, we probably won't get into all of them, but, but we'll get into some of the, the meat of it, I'm sure. But I want to start by telling you what brought me to this point. Some of you already know my story, but for those of you who don't, I think that stories are, are really critically important when we have this conversation. Very, uh, uh, very often, we begin these conversations by just trying to figure out who's on our side, who's on the other side, and we start yelling at each other about Bible passages. Now, as a Christian, I believe that interpreting the Bible correctly matters. I believe getting our doctrine right matters. I believe that's vital. It's vital for the church. It's vital for us as human beings. 
uh, in a relationship with God. But it is also vital that we hear each other's stories. Because yelling Bible passages at each other or yelling about, you know, which uh, hermeneutic, you know, you have and all this stuff is not what brings people to Christ. And it's not what brings people closer to Christ. Um, but, but what God has given us to bring each other uh, closer to Christ and to live out what God's called us to do is love. And so we've got to start there. We've got to start by knowing each other and loving each other. So uh, I grew up in a really wonderful, loving two-parent Christian home, um, very much sort of the, the idealistic uh, evangelical upbringing. I grew up in the South, in North Carolina, grew up Southern Baptist. Um, I uh, prayed to receive Christ at a very young age. I uh, reaffirmed that commitment as a teenager because I just wanted to make it clear uh, to myself and everybody else that this was my decision. This was not something that my parents pushed me into. Um, my whole life, from as far back as I can remember, my faith has been at the center of who I am, of how I understand myself, how I understand my place in the world. Uh, I believe that if you believe in God, if you believe that there is a God who created us, who cares about us, um, that has to uh, impact every aspect of your life. I, I never understood, like I understood folks who didn't believe in God and lived like there was no God, but I never understood folks who did believe there was a God and lived like there was no God. Because to me, if you believe that there's God, that, that changes everything. So I've always believed that the most important thing that any of us can do is to serve God. And uh, I believe that the best way I could do that was by preaching at my friends in school. That didn't go over super well. Um, one of my classmates nicknamed me God Boy because I was the kid who always had a Bible in his backpack and a bunch of tracts about salvation. And, um, I don't think he meant it as a compliment. But I absolutely took it as one. I was the kid in school who was always wearing Christian t-shirts and only listened to Christian music and played Christian video games. <laughs> How many of you have heard my story about Christian video games? Okay, so I have to tell the rest of you. <laughs> so when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in the era of the original Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES. One of the most popular video games at the time was a game called The Legend of Zelda. Um, but The Legend of Zelda has some, like, magic and monsters and stuff. And so a lot of Christian parents weren't super comfortable with their kids playing this game. And so there was a Christian video game company. I kid you not, look it up. It's on the Internet. It was called Wisdom Tree. And Wisdom Tree, this is true, they made terrible Christian video games, uh, one of which was a ripoff of The Legend of Zelda called Spiritual Warfare. This is real. <laughs> so in The Legend of Zelda, you are on a uh, quest to save a princess. In Spiritual Warfare, you're on a quest against the powers of darkness. Um, the music for this game is entirely like 8-bit versions of hymns. <laughs> there are some hymns I cannot listen to to this day without hearing the 8-bit version in my head. You answer Bible trivia as you go along. Um, 
In The Legend of Zelda, um, you, you're, you collect weapons. Uh, in Spiritual Warfare, you collect the fruits of the spirit. <laughs> Only they're actual fruits, apples and bananas and pomegranates. In The Legend of Zelda, your enemies are monsters. In Spiritual Warfare, your enemies are the unsaved. <laughs> right? So when you encounter the unsaved, you throw the fruit of the spirit at them. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. I think we're, we're going to conclude right there. <clears throat> or, and this is true, blow them up with vials of God's wrath. Oh, my goodness. At which point they repent, convert, and disappear. That is not the gospel. <laughs> And I tell this story partly because it's funny um, and is absolutely true, but partly because I think it says something really uncomfortable if we want to examine it about the kind of church culture that some of us grew up in. I saw my role as a Christian to be going out and throwing the truth at people so that they would repent and convert and then I could move on to the next person. And it's not that anybody said those words to me. It's not that anybody said, this is what it means to be a Christian. But that was the message that I took from a lot of things that I heard growing up in church. And so that was the way I lived out my Christianity. I looked for opportunities to debate issues with people. And one of the issues I liked to debate with people was homosexuality. Because I knew that being gay was a choice and a sin and it wasn't God's best for people and so it was my job to argue with them about it so that they would know that being gay was wrong and if I ever met a gay person I was going to tell them how wrong it was so that they would stop being gay and live into God's uh, best for their life. That never happened. Um, I know you're surprised. <laughs> I thought at the time that being a good Christian meant being so certain of everything all the time that if anybody asked any question about any controversial issue, you could quote chapter and verse and give them the right answer. And I now realize that some of that was pride. And God, you know, God, the God who is like, all right, you're not going to do what I say. Uh, swallowed by a whale. How about that? Um, that God um, had a surprise for me. Because when I hit puberty, um, I didn't experience what all my guy friends experienced. That budding attraction to girls and, you know, all of that. Um, I experienced attraction to guys. It took me until I was 18 to realize that there was a word for that and that that word was gay. For years, I considered myself straight. I dated girls. I thought these feelings would pass. And gradually, it became more and more apparent to me that 
that wasn't happening. And it got to the point that I was literally crying myself to sleep night after night, begging God to make me attracted to women. And it didn't happen. And when I finally realized that the word for someone who's attracted to the same sex and not the opposite sex is gay, it wasn't like something I embraced, like, oh, good, I'm gay, now this is going to be the center of my identity. It was more like a diagnosis for a disease. It was like, you got the gay, you know? <laughs> it, it was, I joke about it now, but seriously, like, it was like, if you've ever had weird medical symptoms, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor can't explain it, and you go to another doctor, and that doctor can't explain it, and finally you find a doctor who says, I know what's going on. I know what you have. I have a diagnosis for you. Even if it's a terrible diagnosis, there is some measure of relief in going, finally, at least now I know what this is. And for me, that's what gay was. It was a diagnosis for this disease. It explained what I had been feeling all along. And I thought, now I just have to find the cure. And I went to the so-called ex-gay ministries that Preston mentioned, and long story short, they didn't work. A lot of the people whose testimonies I'd heard, who said I used to be gay and now I'm not, I met those people, and in private they told me stuff that they'd never shared publicly, and I realized it hadn't worked for them either, but they didn't feel comfortable telling the truth in the church. And more and more I started feeling like something's really wrong. If people feel like they can't be honest in church, what's going on here? And so I started writing about my experience online, trying to figure out what does this mean? I thought this was a choice. I didn't choose it. I thought it would change. It hasn't changed. Does this mean my church was wrong about marriage, about same-sex marriage, or does this mean I have to live my life celibately, or, you know, what does this mean? I had all these questions, and I started writing my story online, and I met hundreds and then thousands of other people who were going through the same stuff, and were so alone and so terrified to talk about it in church. And so there's way more to my story, but that's how I got started in this conversation. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that is uh, not Preston's uh, in terms of marriage, but at the end of this evening, my hope is, because I, it's, it's very unlikely that the two of us talking are going to, you know, change everybody's mind one way or the other about what the Bible says about marriage. Well, we'll talk about it. But at the end of the day, my hope is that everyone leaves here with a sense of at least how can we make the church a place where everybody knows that they can come and be honest exactly where they are with their theological questions and the mess in their life and you know, whatever they feel and whatnot and know that they will be loved and supported in the church because right now that's not the reality for a lot of folks. So maybe we can start there. Um, Preston, you mentioned inclusion versus exclusion is really not this binary that you hold. Um, Justin just ended on a very similar theme and a, a similar call to all of us. So I guess um, if we're going to get down into the weeds, the challenge seems to be that if you continue to hold to your, and again, we probably need to talk about terminology too, like the historic yeah. Christian view, and it is being received as non-inclusive, like there's a part of my humanity that is actually not welcomed in your theology. I think that seems to be maybe a good place to start because the, the heart, we, we agree on the heart of what we want to have happen, but yet th there's a theology, there's a teaching that is out there right. that is being received as unloving, as you're rejecting part of my humanity. So maybe we can start there yeah. and do a little back and forth and, and share maybe Justin your thoughts on 
how that's being received as well, and, and maybe a little bit of the differences yeah. of, of your approach on that. So I guess that would be my question. Do want, how, how, do you, yeah. how do you manage and navigate that? Yeah. Because I hear your heart, obviously. I, I mean, this is part of the reason why you're here, is because of this deep desire to open the doors, to, to make the church the place for all people. And yet the, the piece, that one piece is a communication to some people. It's being received as, but how can you say you love me and you welcome me, but you reject this part of who I am? So how would you navigate, yeah. I guess, that? Start with an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we, we don't have much time, so let's yeah, just get, let's just get, just get down it. to it. First of all, I, your final statement, I just want to, amen, amen. I mean, that's a joint kind of goal of tonight. That mm. That's, I couldn't, I wouldn't disagree with the syllable of that. Um, yeah, to answer, to answer your question, I mean, I, so when I say I, the church, maybe I stated it too confidently that the church is a place where all people are included. A lot of you are like calling BS on that. Like, no, I've been to lots of churches and it certainly doesn't feel like that. And that is a massive problem. I mean, it's part of why I spend my full-time job now helping churches to truly be a place where all people feel included into a community seeking holiness and repentance. And maybe they come face to face with the marriage and sexual ethic and they say, you know what? Ah, just not there. Um, can't, can't keep going down this road. But at least they would say, but these people love me. They're walking with me. They're, they're asking honest questions. They're letting me ask honest questions and wrestle out loud. I mean, if the church isn't a place where you, can re- where you can't wrestle out loud with whatever's going on, then that's not the church that God designed the church to be. So, but to your question, like, um, I don't, I don't believe, and, and maybe this would be another point of disagreement. Um, I don't believe that s- marriage and sex is essential for human flourishing. Um, and I, yet I would say that I think aside from just the LGBT conversation, I think that the American conservative, largely evangelical church, or let's just say the American church has idolized marriage and sex. Our culture has idolized, maybe not so much marriage, but sex. And we just, because we can't have sex until we get married, typically, then we idolize marriage and sex to where if you're like 38 and in the church and still single and good looking and people are like, wow, how come she's not married yet? She's so pretty. Like something's wrong with her because she's not married. Like we, we have built into the fabric of evangelicalism, this implicit, sometimes explicit idolization of marriage and sex. So that if you're not quite married yet until you're having lots, lots of great sex, then you haven't quite fully arrived. You cannot, you, you're not really complete. You can't flourish as a human until you have, you know, a great marriage and, and lots of great marital sex. So I just, I don't see that in the New Testament. There's no, there's no place in the New Testament where the word hope or gospel is connected with, like, you will get married and, and, and have a wonderful sex life. I mean, that was one of the problems of the whole purity era. We said, if you do everything right and do your devotion six days a week and don't go past second base with your girlfriend and minimize your porn intake, then God's going to bless you with the one and ah, everything's going to be great, hunky-dory. So I don't... Um, so I, I don't just ontologically, if that anthropologically or theologically, <laughs> I don't think a, a historically Christian view of marriage and sex is in, it is intrinsically dehumanizing because I believe you can be fully human um, without being married or being sexually active. So now communicating that's the that's the million dollar question. So mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't always sound like that. 
so in principle, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said. Um, but so one of the things that is frustrating to a lot of LGBTQ Christians in the church, um, and that's the, you know, the acronym is always changing. That's, that's sort of the, where, where, where we are right now, that's the, 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 what's considered the most accepted acronym now is LGBTQ. Um, I'm also going to speak, though, as a, as a gay guy, so you're going to be talking about gay Christians as well. Um, one of the frustrations that I know that a lot of my fellow LGBTQ Christians have in the church is, is a lack of empathy. The sense that um, we have this conversation and it's a very heady theological conversation, but it's not a, a real lived experience conversation. Um, so it, let me just to illustrate this, if you'll, if you'll let me try something a little unorthodox here. Not theologically unorthodox. <laughs> well, maybe you'll disagree with me. <laughs> if you will, if you feel comfortable, just close your eyes for a second. If you don't feel comfortable, it's okay. I'm not going to call you out. And just, and just put yourself in this position. Imagine, imagine this situation right now for yourself. Imagine if, as we're sitting here, we're having this conversation, we're suddenly interrupted by a, a booming voice from the sky. And God says through this booming voice, I have an announcement. I have decided to end marriage for Christians. Those of you in this room who are single right now, you can never be married. If you have plans in the future that involve marriage, those plans have changed. Those of you in this room who are married already, at the moment you leave this room tonight, your marriage is dissolved. You must separate from your spouse. You cannot see them again. And you may never be married again in the future. If you have children, those also will be taken away from you. And you will never see them again either after tonight. I just want you to sit for a moment and imagine what your emotional reaction would be, what questions you might have. When you get home and you have a conversation with your family about what you heard, what would that conversation be like? What would you say to them? And with your eyes still closed, Think about how the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead of you might be different. What would change? What would be difficult for you? Who would you spend time with? And imagine if you got sick and you needed round-the-clock care. Who in your life, with your family gone, who would care for you and make sure you got the treatment that you needed? Now, as you feel comfortable, you can open your eyes. And I just want you to reflect for a moment on the emotion of that. And imagine how that might change the church, how that might change what the gospel sounds like to people outside of the church. If you say, hey, when you become a Christian, you must leave your family. 
how many people in this room do you imagine would stay Christians? If God said, this is only for Christians, so if you're not a Christian, you can have your family. How many people would stay? How many people would maintain their private family and just not tell anybody at church? Now, when, I, when you imagined yourself in that scenario, how many of you was your primary concern about sex? Yeah, nobody. This is what's so frustrating to a lot of gay Christians in particular when we have this conversation. What many of our churches have said to us is, you can't be married, you can't have kids. If you are married, you have to leave your spouse because this is not what God wants for you. And we say, gosh, I have a lot of questions. Like, if this happened for real, people would be like, how do I know that was God? And somebody wasn't hacking the PA system, you know? (laughs) We might have questions like, well, wait, what if God didn't say you can never see your spouse again, but God just said you can't live together as husband and wife anymore? Well, could we still live together and not be husband and wife or live next door to each other? Can we still spend time together? Can we still cuddle on the couch and watch Netflix together if we don't have sex? Like, there would be a lot of those questions, right? And yet I find that when gay Christians ask those questions in our churches or, or just want someone to hold hands with in church or whatever, people automatically assume that's bad, that's sinful. We say, well, can we have romance? Can we have intimate companionship? And people are like, it seems like you're just splitting hairs. And over and over again, the conversation ends up being about sexual morality and what God wants for us sexually. Now, sex is a part of marriage, but the big question that we're asking is not about sex. It's about companionship and love and who cares for us when we get sick and and the deep grief that comes with somebody saying, you have to be alone. Now, let me ask you one more thing and then I'll shut up. How many of you, when I asked... Where, who might take care of you, or who would you spend time with? How many of you thought of the church in that role? Oh, not very many people. That's kind of terrible. Um, I think the church has the, the ability to be that for people. And the church right now is the place that most LGBTQ people feel the least safe in the world. So I tell you, I I put you through that, and I ask you to imagine that, not because I think that answers the theological question. Just because it's hard doesn't mean God didn't say it. But I, I want you to think about, when we have this conversation, how much deeper this is for folks than just a question about sex. So that's, that's where I think the dehumanization comes in. Yeah. This sense that we get reduced to a debate about sex. Yeah. Yeah. Preston, do you have a... I mean... The modern-day conversation, debate, dialogue about sexual ethics, marriage ethics is so intertwined with, a, with a, what should be a conversation about ecclesiology, about church, because the church that Jesus envisioned and fought so hard to build in terms of being... Like when you said, like, would the church be the one caring for you? And I'm thinking, like, first century church? Oh, absolutely. 21st century American church? Few and far between. Yeah. And that's why I think it is, um, we can't, this is that stupid cliched phrase I, I, I said to you earlier, they're just so goofy, but it, it makes sense. Like, as, as if, you're a tra- if you believe in a traditional view of marriage and stuff in this room, like, you can't just try to call people out of sin without calling them into kin. 
um, or a, a friend of ours, Eve Tishnet, talks about the vocation of no. Don't have gay sex. Good luck with that. See you on the other side. I'm out of here. I got a family to go attend to. Like, if we're not willing to do what Jesus commanded us to do in Mark 10, 29 to 30 of like becoming the family and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and fields and homes for all of God's people, opening up our homes and our dinner tables and minivans and family lives and doing that, then I just, I, I get nervous about people just saying, don't have gay sex. Good luck with that. I'm going to go home to my family and, you know, hope that works out for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think this is a lot of common ground actually <laughs> within the difference that, that, man, we need to wake up to the, the, to becoming the reward that Jesus built into the gospel. You leave behind everything in Mark 10. What do you get? Well, you get eternal life in the afterlife. That's great. If that's all there was, and that's, hey, it's worth it. But also in this life, you get the reward of mothers and families and fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers, you know, the, the spiritual kinship. But when you look around at our, the, the way our modern day churches, mostly, not all, all of them, but a, and a lot of times, they're not, it's not that kind of like powerfully attractive, authentic community that I think Jesus in, envisioned. So, um, yeah, I love what you said, Justin. I think it's convicting, challenging, and correct. So. Yeah, so it feels like there's a couple things that are going on that need a little bit more fleshing out. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. That was really, I think, a, a perspective that I, I, I'm so glad that you voice and you model it so well for us. I'm hearing the voice on the other side, though, Justin, that would say, that's... I, I have sympathy, I have empathy, but I can't let that personal experience change the way that I read the text. Sure. And so um, I, I didn't hear you, Preston, mention anything about you know, re- responding specifically to how pre- uh, Justin's uh, e- exercise in that imaginative exercise leads to an interpretation of how we actually practice this. But so I, I guess the, the question for you then, Justin, would be, um, the text is the text. Right. And it says what it says, and as much empathy as I can have for you, I, I, can't, I can't dishonor God by dishonoring what the scriptures are teaching. So how, I think, again, to honor the, the exercise, it's really wonderful, and I really appreciate you doing that. So how, how would you respond to that? What's the navigation through that? So, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that's, I think that's right. I think that, that at the end of the day, if God says sacrifice Isaac, you you sacrifice Isaac, right? Like that's, um, but for me, the starting point for the conversation has to be for those who are not directly affected, and this specifically, you know, affects those of us who are, who are gay, uh, the, some of the questions are a little more complicated for other folks on the LGBTQ plus spectrum, but, um, if we're going to say to, to gay Christians, uh, you know, this is what God's demanding, uh, at the very least, there needs, that needs to come with a tremendous amount of, like, grief and walking that, you know, walking through that with people and not just dismissing it as, uh, well, you know, we put too much emphasis on, uh, on family in the culture, which I know is not at all how you meant what you said, but it's, it's definitely how it, 
feels at times when, when folks in the church say that. Um, it's sort of like, gosh, well, we spend too much time talking about fam- family, you know? Family is not the end-all be-all. Marriage isn't the end-all be-all. Uh, anyway, I, hey, I'm late to have dinner with my wife, so, you know. <laughs> um, but as I said, that does not by itself determine the theology. What I would hope that it does do is encourage us to go back to the scriptures and make sure that they do say what we think that they said. In the same way that if, if we did literally hear a voice from the sky that sounded like God was saying that, that we would do some analysis and say, okay, wait, this is a really big deal. Let's make sure that was actually God. And let's make sure we parse very carefully what was just said. Um, I, I, I disagree with Preston in his describing of his view as the historical Christian view. It is certainly true that the church historically has not um, uh, allowed for same-sex sex. The church historically has said that same-sex sex is sinful. That's not really been debated in the church until fairly recently. What the church has not historically said is we recognize that there are gay people who are also Christians for whom a same-sex relationship is the only real opportunity that they have for a romantic relationship, uh, and those people must be celibate. Mm. And that may sound like I'm splitting hairs, but it's a really significant distinction, um, because through the vast majority of the church's 2,000-year history, uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of debate about this, partly because there wasn't any cultural conversation about the existence of gay people. The assumption was everybody had the opportunity for heterosexual attraction. And so to say don't have same-sex sex was essentially equivalent to saying don't have sex outside of marriage. Uh, what's the problem? Mm. Um, so I think that it's important that we go back and re-examine what the scriptures say. And I would argue, and gosh, this would take a lot longer than we have, but I mean, I would argue that there are a lot of things in Scripture that would lead us to a different reading. Um, but that's, that's, for me, the, really the, the, the point of, of the exercise. Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you want to respond? I mean, what, so yeah. I'll, I'll follow up with a question okay. to, to you, Preston. Yeah. You, you mentioned and a little bit to what Justin was saying, that um, the response of, well, we get to give too much emphasis to family and marriage and, yeah. and things like that, and that's not the end-all be-all. But yet the argument that I've heard you make, as well as other people on, on a very similar position, would make the argument from creation, Yeah. right? We're going back to Genesis 1, and we're using Genesis 1 mm-hmm. as the preeminent example of God's good design. So I, I'm kind of curious, mm-hmm. that sounds dissonant to me, to say that God's good design, and mm-hmm. we are very strong in the emphasis of male and female, mm-hmm. created in God's image, man's going to leave you know, his, his mother and father be united to his wife, right? All of that teaching. And yet at the same time, you're saying, but, you know, marriage and sex is not really yeah. all that big of a deal. So help yeah. me navigate okay. those two pieces yeah. of the puzzle and somewhat in response to Justin's um, comment that brushing that aside still feels like a dismissiveness. Um, <clears throat> beginning with what you just said, I... Um, the brushing aside. Wait, say say that part again. Just want to make sure. <laughs> if I well, yeah. I don't know if you want to re- re- respond or reply or restate what you mentioned. Or I could just address what your first part of your question <clears throat> is. That if that works. Well, I, I think Justin was mentioning that part of the frustration is, you know, to bring this up and 
is when we're being told, well, marriage is not that important. Yeah. Essentially what you just mentioned, right? right. It's okay. not that important. It's not, it's not the ultimate element or essence of what it means to yeah. be a human flourishing. So here, yeah, I would say marriage is, is very important um, as, as an institution, as for those who are called to marriage. I, I would say, I don't think, to put it, I guess, biblically, I don't think the New Testament teaches that marriage is essential for human flourishing. Mm. Old Testament, if all we had is the Hebrew Bible, it may be different. I think there it, it seems to be a, bit, a, a much bigger part of the fabric of human existence, whereas in the New Testament, there seems to be this um, profound elevation of singleness, you know, on par, <laughs> depending on how you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, maybe even beyond, you know, marriage. But marriage itself, the definition of, of marriage doesn't change, but it's how it's framed in terms of its relation to human flourishing for all people, I think, is, is diminished. So, um, yes, absolutely a, a sacred institution. I don't think the definition changes throughout Scripture. Um, but I think it is downplayed, not redefined, but downplayed as a means for human flourishing in, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, there's theological significance in the fact that we serve a Savior um, of marital age who is single, who exemplified human flourishing and what it means to bear God's image more than more than anybody. Um, with, um, yeah, so with, I mean, with Genesis 1 and 2, I, I do think, I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 is not just the first two chapters of the Bible. It, it is pretty fundamental to a Christian worldview. I mean, it's, it's where we get the goodness of creation. Like, if you believe that we're to care for creation, like, that's a profound statement that, that the Bible declares that creation is good. It's where we get the full equality of man and woman. Like it, one of the most radical, profound, beautiful statements in all of ancient Near Eastern literature is that male and female are created in God's image equally. That, that was the most radical statement in the ancient world. Uh, the sovereignty of God in Genesis 1, the, the intimacy of God in Genesis 2. I mean, these are profound themes for a Christian worldview. I wouldn't say any of these are just kind of insignificant wrapped up into that is the beauty and equality of sex difference. And then at the end of Genesis, when two sexually different persons come together in a one flesh union, like I, that's wrapped up in the whole package in Genesis one and two. I do think that is, that is rather significant. Um, yeah. It's up there. So when I, it's interesting, like when I read, uh, when I read this, the same passage that you're talking about, um, I don't see in that passage a big deal being made about sexual difference. That's, I, 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 it's certainly there. It's certainly, you know, I would argue it's that part, the fact that you have male and female is descriptive, but not prescriptive. Um, What I see as really standing out in that passage is God saying of Adam, it is not good that the man should be alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul, yeah. Paul upholds singleness, but then Paul also says, you know, it's better to marry than burn with passion. Um, I, over and over, I see scripture reaffirming that marriage is, uh, is valuable and is important and is something that many of us would feel a tremendous loss without. Uh, you know, I have a friend who says, um, <laughs> he says, like, all I, like, I want to get married, but he says, like, if the church says I can't get married... At the very least, I, I just, even if I can never have sex, I want somebody to watch Netflix with under a blanket. And the church thinks I want Netflix and chill, 
<laughs> but all I really want is I want someone to like, like sit next to under a blanket and watch Netflix, you know? Like there is this longing that I think we were created for to be connected to another, another person. And not every person, you know, there are people in this room for whom that exercise earlier was probably not a big deal because they're either like in a bad marriage, would be happy to be out of it, or <laughs> I don't know your life. Um, or, or single and never felt a particular call to singleness. But the Bible never suggests that that is for everyone or for a large group of people and that, or it should be enforced on people. Now, is it, is it essential for human flourishing? No, I don't think it's essential for human flourishing necessarily as such. But I'm reminded of the story where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And the, the, the guy that Jesus heals, uh, you know, has a withered hand. Is it essential for human flourishing to have a non-withered hand? No, I don't think so. Um, but Jesus chooses to heal on the Sabbath, even though you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law get upset about it and, and give them a hard time about it. And Jesus says, and there's several occasions where he has these kinds of conversations about work on the Sabbath. Um, you know, but, but he, he says, you know, which is better on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Which is a weird, like, it's not like his only option was either, you know, heal this guy or kill him. I mean, he could have left the guy. He could have come back and healed him another day. Jesus makes a conscious choice. And Jesus, on one of these occasions, says, um, if your child or your ox fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you pull them out? And for me, what Jesus is saying is, okay, yeah, there's a rule about work on the Sabbath. And that rule is valuable and it's important. It was a very, very important rule. Um, but he's saying, look, it, it matters the impact of your theology. It matters not just that you're following the rule, but what is the impact of that on human beings who are hurting? Mm -hmm. And I feel like what the church is saying to folks is, or what the church is saying to a lot of Christian parents is, leave your children in the well overnight because the passages clearly say that. And then when we look at the passages, none of those passages are about same-sex marriage or gay people being celibate. You have passages about stuff like gang rape in Sodom or idol worship in Romans. You know, passages in 1 Corinthians in the context of a, of, a, of, a, of a culture where men are having sex with boys on the side outside of their marriage. And I don't think any of that applies to two people who want to commit their lives to each other in, in the sight of Christ. And, and so that's, that's my concern, is that we've gotten so concerned with uh, applying these verses legalistically, the way the Pharisees were, trying to do the right thing, that we've missed the forest for the trees. This feels like a, a commonality, actually, between both of you in your stories. And I, I want to reemphasize a point that you made, Justin, that I think is that we don't want to gloss over, that you're not saying that your experience or that empathy... Um, replaces or usurps or is higher than the text, but it causes you to go back and re read and to rethink and to recognize that maybe the 1984 NIV English version may not be the, the most, you know, accurate way in which God has dictated his will, right? So your experience leads you to revisit that. Is that a fair... Yeah, I think the conscience... Well, for, so first of all, I actually... One of the things I like about the 1984 NIV version... <laughs> <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. 
uh, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 in that passage uh, says homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God, which led a friend of mine to say, uh, and always makes me laugh, uh, the Bible condemns homosexual offenders, so stop offending the homosexuals. <laughs> which... <laughs> That's bad theology. That's bad theology. Um, <laughs> Interestingly, that passage in the NIV today has been sort of quietly retranslated, and it now says men who... It used to say homosexual offenders and male prostitutes, and now it says men who have sex with men, which is kind of different. Um, so, but yeah, no, that's... What I'm saying is, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not saying that the fact that this is hard, that it's hard teaching means automatically, you know, uh, we should never ask people to sacrifice... Uh, that God's commands are always easy or anything like that. Um, God asks us to give up a lot. And if God asks us to do, to do something really horrible, you know, not really horrible, something really difficult, then, then we have to do something really difficult. But I do think that our, our empathy and our conscience ought to move us to, to re-examine these texts and be really careful. And I think one of the places where we, we know we failed to do that historically is slavery. The church, uh, for like... 1,800 years did not, on any significant scale, condemn slavery. In fact, the more you study history, the more disturbing stuff you find about how many ways the church across denominations, across cultures, um, allowed and participated in and supported slavery. And, you know, occasionally you would have, like, a person who would pop up here or there and go, something feels really wrong about this. But the, the teachers, the powers that be would go back and say, well, look, here's this passage that says slavery is okay, and here's this passage, and this passage, and this passage. And it even got to the point, there's a great book about this uh, by an evangelical uh, Christian historian named uh, Mark Knoll, and it's called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And he argues that in the American Civil War, as the cultural attitudes towards slavery in the U.S. were changing and more and more Christians were becoming abolitionists, that there was a real theological crisis because for so many Christians, including those who didn't like slavery, there was a sense that scripture was clear in allowing slavery, and yet their consciences were leading them in another direction, and they didn't know what to do about it. And it's, I mean, some of the quotes from that era are just like, I mean, you can, um, I'll, I'll give you one real quick, just because I think this is, uh, uh, like, this is, is just incredible. Um, uh, I'll give you a couple. So, Leonard Bacon, 1846, the evidence that there were both slaves and masters of slaves in the churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation which will get rid of everything. Moses Stewart, 1850, who Knoll says was widely recognized as the nation's most learned biblical scholar at the time, wrote that abolitionists, quote, must give up the New Testament authority or abandon the fiery course which they are pursuing. In other words, you can't be an abolitionist and believe that the New Testament is the word of God because the New Testament so clearly allows slavery. Um, we look back at that now and we go, that was really wrong. And we see evidence in scripture of a movement that we go, oh, here's the evidence that we would now point to to say the Bible doesn't allow for slavery. But it was not obvious to the church for almost 2,000 years. 
And that was a conversation the church was having for, for 2,000 years. This is a conversation the church hasn't been having until recently. And so I think we need to be open to, if our consciences are saying something feels wrong here, we need to listen to that. Because that could be the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I think that's a perfect yeah. lead yeah, in for you. All right, yeah. tell me why I'm wrong. It, well, in, ad- okay. <laughs> in addition to that, you, ha- you have other issues such as uh, divorce, self-mutila- self-mutilation, um, yeah. in addition to slavery. So... Yeah. Yeah. So let me. Yeah. Let me try to go back and let me begin with the slavery one. I mean, I. um, I don't. I would say there is more diversity in church history, especially in the anti-Nicene period. I mean, um, several early church fathers were not as into slavery as you think. Even Aquinas had different views and others. I think there was more diversity there. But yeah, of course, there's 19th century Christian American interpreters who I think just totally botched interpreting how the Bible frames slavery. Um, I mean, kind of part, part of me is like, yeah, I mean, there's several times throughout church history when interpreters botch interpreting the Bible. I mean, think about for how long we would, they were so misogynistic and demeaning towards women, even though Genesis 1 seems pretty clear that women are fully equal with men. But, so, I mean, if this was a dialogue about slavery, scripture, and the soul of Christianity, I would love to just, you know, <laughs> dig deeper into that and talk about, you know, the trajectory of slavery in the Bible and how Paul gets slavery from the inside out and how de- slavery is a departure from Genesis 1 and 2, where I think sex difference in marriage is going back to the Genesis 1 and 2 ideal. And, um, and both of us are going to agree that the Bible doesn't endorse slavery. And so, but we would have biblical reasons for that. So that's yeah. where I want to say, I think it's, it just, I mean, just from my vantage point, it, it feels like a bit of a red herring to say, well, we kind of screwed up this area here. And so therefore, and it's like, I'm going to hang out on that therefore a little bit and say, wait a minute, just because we got slavery wrong, just because a lot of Christians misinterpreted the Bible to get slavery wrong for all these years, doesn't mean therefore you can just kind of map that on another ethical question. We have to actually take the biblical clarity and evidence for or against this ethical question with same-sex marriage and same-sex sexual relations and, and, and look at that. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I look at Genesis, I, I just, I, I'm trying so hard not to just, trying hard not to read into the text what I want to see there. And we, we both are. And I think that we have to be honest that we do read the text with, with, with lenses on and baggage and we, we have to work hard not to, not to bring that to our interpretive method. But when, when I look at Genesis, I mean, you know, you have in, in Genesis 2.23 where, where uh, Adam's all excited, he's all stoked that God created Eve. And he's like, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, a statement of equality. And then he says, you know, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. A statement of difference. Woman, man. If it's not sex difference that is being celebrated there, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm reading into the text by saying I think Woman taken out of man, that, that sex difference being highlighted. And then it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The they who become one flesh are precisely two sexually different persons. Then in Matthew 19, Jesus emphasizes it even more. He says, God created them from the beginning, male and female, therefore. And I know you're a context guy, so what's that therefore, therefore? It's connecting Male, female, therefore the two, or the man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. And I don't, I mean, you bet, I'm fine letting the audience decide. I mean, I don't think I'm reading into the text when the two become one flesh that logically, syntactically, exegetically, the two are the male and female, which 
I mean, if there's any first century Jew in the room right now, they would be yawning. It's like, well, yeah, this is not, this is not radical stuff. I mean, this is what Judaism on 500 years either side of Jesus believed. It wasn't like some radical thing they're pushing for. So, and, and with the, um, I don't know if we want to get into the prohibition passages. Well, can I, I, can mean, I add something to sure, that? Yeah, yeah. Um, to be fair, I don't know if Justin is, is saying, please correct me if I'm wrong, that because we got slavery wrong, therefore we've got this wrong. It's not like a one-to-one correspondence. Um, at least from what I understand from Justin's writings as well as some other, uh, some other arguments. It's to recognize that the way in which we read the text itself yeah. has to be revisited. And so when you say things like, I don't think I'm reading into it, mm-hmm. um, that, fe- that, that I think can be perceived as doing, well, it's kind of the same thing. Well, some of those quotes about slavery, it's like, well, this clearly says this and this clearly says this. To revisit the issue of slavery is not just to revisit the text and see what it says. It's to revisit ourselves and how we've mm-hmm. drawn from what the text actually says to what it actually means. And so I don't think I would argue with you, at least textually, that there's male and female and taken out yeah. of the side. You know, none of that is an argument. That's in the text. I think what I'm understanding to be the crux of it is to draw from that, and I think, Justin, you alluded to this, that difference is the point. That's the jump. That's the leap, right? It's, it's not to say that the difference isn't there. It's to ask the question, why is difference the point or at least a theological grounding anchor in what this creation story is saying. It would be the same thing like with slavery. Slavery is not the, that we are rethinking it because it's not the point. There's something much bigger that's going on to, to read into, especially when with, you know, Paul's letter to Philemon mm-hmm. um, and Onesimus, right? You have, we're now revisiting how we read. Does that, does that make sense? And is that a fair? Well, yeah, I mean, let me first say, I like, I want to completely agree with, with Preston that, uh, you know, yeah, that, that having, having a, a, a position on slavery does not mean that you have a certain position uh, on, on this question. They are not identical situations. I think one of the things, one of the places that we often get caught up is the, this kind of slippery slope idea that, you know, if, if you have this position on this issue, then, then what's going to happen, you know, you know, then you'll have a position on that. And it, it goes both ways. I think every issue we have to take uh, on its own merits, textually and mm-hmm. so forth. So I, I want to completely uh, give you that. Uh, Aquinas, I'm not going to give you because Aquinas, uh, Aquinas allowed for people to beat did, their yeah. slaves. So, yeah. but he he had yeah. But <laughs> I mean, but but I, I it is a complicated question, yeah. and I think and I think it's it's vital and uh, you know, like we're gonna di- we're gonna disagree on this. We're gonna disagree on 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 slavery. We're gonna disagree on uh, Genesis. We could go probably an hour talking about that, you know, what is that therefore, therefore, because of many thoughts about why Jesus uses that phrase at the time that he does. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they're different from yours. Um, But I do think it's important for the sake of having a gracious conversation in the church that we'd be able to look at these passages, um, that we'd be able to recognize that it is as much as we want to read these texts and just hear what God is saying in these texts. 
it is impossible for us to read these texts without reading them to some extent through our own lenses. Um, Tony Campolo once said, uh, you, you may have inerrant scriptures, but none of us are inerrant interpreters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I like that. And it means that I can't read these texts without bringing to it the fact that I'm gay and would like to get married someday. Mm-hmm. By the way, having um, pro-gay marriage theology has not helped me out at all. <laughs> I'm still single, so I don't know what that means. Anyway. None of the three of us on this stage can read these texts without bringing to the texts what we heard in church about these texts growing up, what we believe the right answers are, uh, the people we know who are affected by the texts, our own experiences. Like All of these things influence how we read them. And so I do think, uh, you know, ultimately, you and I could spend hours up here debating some of these texts, but I think it, you know, ultimately one of the things we have to be willing to do is to, to have some grace for each other and to say, I, you know, I fully believe, I think Preston's wrong on this. And I, and I think that if the church gets it wrong in either direction, it is a, a serious error because either we're encouraging people to do something that is sinful or we're telling people something is sinful that's not sinful and putting an extra burden on them that's causing people to leave the church and walk away from Christ. And either way, I think the church will be held to account. And the problem is there's no safe answer because we have to do, we have to have a, a, an answer one way or the other. And either way, we could get it wrong. One of us is wrong. Mm-hmm. But we still have to have grace for each other, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and be able to say, I believe that even though I think Preston's wrong, I think that he is trying very hard to read the text correctly and to listen to the Spirit. I think he's wrong. <laughs> so this, this, I, I'm, I'm feel, having excruciating feelings because of time. And um, <laughs> uh, the, the, one of the most important things that we had agreed needed to be discussed is where does the church go from here? And I think your comment is a, a good one to transition to that. And then we'll take our intermission and, and um, field some questions. Um, but the, the question is essentially, so where do we go from here? Given that the stakes are very high and given that grace is needed for each other and given that we are a room full of people that I know because um, I've had conversations with some of my friends out here that have had really difficult, challenging conversations where this is, this is a very real life issue for some. It's a justice issue for some. Um, it's a Bible issue for some, right? It's all intermixed in that. Um, maybe both of you can give us a, a quick five-minute summary on what do you think actually is the way forward for this. I mean, we just had the United Methodist Church news hit, and virtually every major denomination in our country is now splitting and dividing over this. Mm-hmm. So th- this, just this happening, I think, is beautiful and miraculous, and I'd love to hear your take, your thoughts on where do we go from here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if any of you... Either of you can go forward on that. Go first. Oh my God, so many thoughts about that. Um, I think in terms of tone, posture for those who are on the so-called traditional side of this, you believe in traditional marriage, you're on my side. If we don't, if we don't create a much better culture where LGBT people can 
and I truly mean this, flourish, or at the very least, be able to wrestle out loud, be listened to. I can't tell you how many stories I hear from people. I was raised in church, found out I was gay, but puberty, and all I wanted was for somebody to listen to my story. Just, you don't, you don't need to agree with me, whatever, just, just can you give me time to listen to me? Hear me out. Why do I have to wrestle alone? Why do I have to leave the church to find love and community? Why do I have to leave the Christian community of Jesus followers? I have to leave that to find love and community and care. And just, just listening. You can be the most fundamentalist person in here. If you actually believe the Bible, you, that's, we need to become a community where people can wrestle out loud and listen. 83% of LGBT people were raised in the church. Christian church. It's millions and millions and millions and millions of people raised in our pews. 51% have left by the time they turn, or after they turn 18. I mean, that's not a real shocker. Only 3% said the number one reason why they left is because of the theological teaching of marriage and sexuality. Meaning 97% of LGBT people who were raised in the church, this is millions and millions and millions of people, are leaving because 18%, I didn't feel safe at church. I think 14% said nobody ever listened to me. Relational disconnect with leaders. Um, Incongruence between teaching and practice. In other words, hypocrisy. Like here I am sitting at a church and, you know, that guy's been divorced and remarried five times and that guy's having an affair and that elder's addicted to porn and that guy's addicted to porn and that guy's addicted to porn and that guy's addicted to porn, and which is <laughs> fine. We're all broken. We're, you know, whatever. But like, how come, how come I can't say, oh, I'm wrestling with an attraction to the same sex or I, even though I'm a biological man, I feel like a woman. And why can't we all wrestle out loud in that context? We're going to agree to disagree on, on sexual ethics and marriage. And, and again, I think they're significant disagreements. And, and yeah, I wish we had more time to, yeah. <laughs> to go through it all. But if you are on the traditional side, I do believe it's not, this is why I don't like the phrase traditional marriage. Because it's like, oh, we believe it just because of tradition. Like, I just, if you Google press and sprinkle and tradition, you're not going to get a lot of hits. Like, I, I'm not, I don't just, oh, this is what we always believe. You know, like, I'm just not into that at all. Um, we don't, I, I think there is ethical, theological, logical, historical, biblical credibility to the so-called traditional view in marriage. I don't think it means you're a homophobe. I don't think it means you are blindly just following this. At the same time, if we don't become, if we don't embody the kindness of God that leads to repentance, (laughs) then we're failing to be the church that Jesus has called us to be. Ask, Ask your LGBT friend, or if you're LGBT here, like when you think of the church, what comes to mind? Christian church. Oh, kindness. If I want to experience kindness, oh, I find the nearest church. If I just want to be wrapped in kindness, I go to the nearest church. And, and, and the more Bible-believing it is, that's where I'm going to go. Church kindness. No, you la- so but until that is the response, we are failing to embody the, the grace of Christ as we ought. We are the embodiment of Christ's presence on earth. The kindness of God leads to repentance. I mean, this is, not, this is one-on-one stuff, right? But that has not been our reputation. What's that statistic that... Uh, Gabe Lyons and Kinnaman, 14 years ago, they surveyed non-believers. What do you think of when you think of the church? The number one response, not Jesus, grace, not even like truth or Bible. It was 91% anti-homosexual. I mean, we are failing to embody 
the kindness of God as we ought. And so we absolutely need to do that. Our, our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. If you're passionate about the truth, maybe you're like, truth, truth. You struggle with grace, that's fine. Nobody will care about your truth until they feel your love. Mm-hmm. So. First of all, Preston, how, how do the people in this church know that everybody is struggling with porn? What is going on in this church? <laughs> I always assume... When I see people with their cell phones in church that they're taking notes, like I am. It's the back row Baptists. You got to keep an eye on those guys. So, um, yeah, I, look, we can't, we can't gloss over this disagreement. And, um, and I think it's important that you hear it from my side that we can't gloss over the disagreement because I think there are a lot of people on my side who think that the, uh, well, I think there are a lot of people on both sides who think that the answer is either to, to not talk about it or let's just agree to disagree and, you know, not have any church, you know, policies one way or the other. And I, and I don't think that's helpful because I think we need to get it right. We just don't agree on what getting it right means. That said, as long as there is a disagreement in the church about what getting it right looks like, I think there are ways that even within these two separate theological positions on marriage, we can still get it right in a lot of other ways uh, as we still work through the, the marriage disagreement. And, and uh, one of those is uh, I, I absolutely think that it is important, if you, if you agree with me, it is important not to assume that folks on Preston's side of this are, as he said, are homophobes. Um, I don't think Preston is a homophobe. Preston has been nothing but kind and gracious to me, and he is traveling around and speaking to folks who are on his side of this, uh, encouraging them to be more kind and gracious and to listen to people and to use the right terminology and everything. There are things he says that I don't agree with. There are times that, you know, if I were sitting in the audience of one of his things, there are times that I would want to jump up and be like, no, I say, no to that. <laughs> but, but there is absolutely no question that this is a guy who loves and wants to see the church be more loving and be a place where everybody truly feels welcome, not just in a sort of all are welcome, you know, statement on the bulletin, but, but really in a felt lived way. And that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that we, uh, that we get to know each other and, and care about each other as human beings. One of the things that Preston and I got to do before we came out on the stage was actually sit down and talk about, uh, about our lives. Actually, he did ask a lot of questions and I talked more. <laughs> which I know is a surprise to everybody who knows me. Um, But like, that was really helpful because because if we know each other, then then we can work through this as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, There is, one of my favorite quotes is by Tim Keller, who says this. He says, um, to be uh, loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. Mm. 
To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. Mm -hmm. And that is what our churches need to be. Places where somebody, whatever they look like, whoever they're in a relationship with, uh, however they're dressed, whatever pronouns they use, can walk in the door and know that they will be known and loved. And that's I think where we where we start, and we can do that on on both sides of this divide. That's awesome. Thank you guys so much. <clears throat>